Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, this week we get to hear from the incredible bassist Matthew Seligman. Now, I don't know how many of you would recognize his name, but if you were paying any attention to alternative music in the 80s, you would know all kinds of things that he played on. Let me give you a rundown. So he was briefly a member of the Soft Boys near the end of their run, and he was also a member of the Thompson Twins very early in their run. In fact, he co-wrote this hit right here in the name of love. After they came to an end, or his formation with them came to an end, he joined up with Thomas Dolby, and that became a very profitable uh, collaboration that lasted pretty much for the rest of the decade. In fact, he played on She Blinded Me With Science. Around the same time, he was also uh, sort of hired out as a session bassist for all kinds of people. A lot of my favorite stuff. He played with Morrissey, he played with Peter Murphy, he played with the Waterboys, all kinds of stuff. You're going to recognize, there is so much music in this episode, and hopefully you recognize a lot of it. And these are one of those kind of inter interviews that I really love, because I get to just go down his resume line by line and ask him about all the music that I really loved that he did. And then we get some insight into the people that he collaborated with. I hope you guys like these too. They mean a lot to me. You'll also notice in this that the sound quality is very much improved. I, I was trying out some new gear with this one. A buddy of mine, Sam, loaned me a, a, a microphone. I, um, I did Skype instead of over the phone like I normally do. I also tried this new app to record it. And I think it went pretty well. I have to admit, though, I hate to say this. I wasn't 100% present during the interview because there was a part of me that was so concerned about whether everything was working or not. You know, was I nose breathing into the microphone? If I laughed at anything he said, by the way, he has an incredible laugh. I love his laugh. If I laughed at anything he said, would I be like blowing out everyone's headphones? I really didn't know, you know? So those of you who criticize me sometimes for coming off as a little too enthusiastic, maybe you'll like this because I didn't really know what was going on because I wasn't sure how it was all gonna sound. He's done so much music that I loved. He's now actually a barrister in London. And that's where he called me from, his home in London. I had thought about you and a mutual Facebook friend of ours named Rob Disner. I think that's how you say his name. Oh, uh, um, yeah. Is, is yeah. he like a Robin? I've got two groups of Facebook sort of friends that I haven't met. <laughs> yeah, I you haven't know, met either. <laughs> um, which is mainly Robin fans or Thomas Dolby fans. Ah, it's, it, yes. It's one of those cohorts, right. usually. I uh, I don't know what which one he falls into because I don't know him personally either. I know him through he listens to this podcast, and so uh, um, he recommended quite, you, and I thought that was perfect. Oh. Yeah. They're quite similar, actually, Robin and Tom, because they both kind of made it bigger in America than England as as kind of English eccentrics. Really, that's that seemed to be the market. Yeah. See, I wouldn't that, have known that. I don't know how big they are in England. I just assume they are. No, no, they're bigger in America, and they and they both sort of got their breakthroughs over there, really. Yeah, that I can imagine. So you, I, I mean, I want to hear about you personally, but I also, you have a resume here that's full of some of my favorite music of all time, and so oh. I mainly want to ask you, I want to ask you about working with some people. You mentioned Robin. Yeah, sure. So let's, I mean, your first big credit that I can see is playing on the Soft Boys Underwater Moonlight album. How did this happen? 
Well, actually, it happened because it was my second big credit. Oh. Because the first record I played on, I think, was with Bruce Woolley. He was actually he was signed to CBS at the time, which became Sony, and he was making an album, and he needed someone who could play with a pick. So I lied and said I could, <laughs> and and the session was three days later. So I remember going back, and sitting in my mum's house, you know, and practicing for three days. I, t- I don't know if Bruce knows. <laughs> I must tell him he something. Well, well, he will. Um, <laughs> and. He'd just written Video Killed the Radio Star with Trevor Horn. Oh, sure. So he, he was, somehow Buggles had split up. They'd been, they'd been the backing band for Tina Charles, who was a kind of white soul pop act. Mm. And Bruce and Trevor and Jeff Downs, I don't know if Jeff Downs actually, Bruce and Trevor anyway had been in the backing band and they, they knew each other from Leicester. They were from the Midlands, mm. Nottingham or Leicester. As were the... Um, a, a few of those bit like the stereo MCs came out of that same group of friends. I'm going to ask you about them in a bit too. All right. Well, it's yeah. all the same crowd, but Bruce and Trevor broke up and Trevor went off to form Buggles and, and Bruce carried on and they'd written this song together. So, and clean, clean. So they both mm-hmm. did versions of both songs, but Trevor kind of won the day on that one.
But they've stayed friends ever since, and they've worked together on Slave to the Rhythm. Bruce wrote all that, too, with, with Trevor. That's one of my favorite songs of all time. Uh, Trevor, I, I could go down a rabbit hole for Trevor, too. He's Everything he touches, yeah. I love, pretty much. So, you, I mean, were you plucked out of obscurity for this? How did this no, I happen? No, I... Well, I was up at Cambridge University, which is how eventually I got back to being the soft boys. Mm. And I'd met a bloke called Rob Lamb, whose brother was Charlie Gillett, who was a DJ. And he was more than a DJ. He was a kind of a scene Mm. in South London. And he met a lot of people and kind of pointed them. He was one of those people who could transform, who could discover people. And he'd met people like Elvis Costello and Dire Straits and stuff. And he had a little record company called Oval Records. And I ended up playing uh, with a few bands on that. And Bruce just saw me playing one of those nights down at the Hope and Anchor. And that's when he asked me if I could play with the pick. Because it was punk. It was punk days. And mm-hmm. and everyone used to play with plectrums. But... um. Mm. In a way, I, I kind of—I never—I have much sense at all. I, I usually I'm a fingers player. Okay. But that was the thing in those days to get a bit of definition. Sure. Okay. And so. So. Yes, that's plucked? that's how I met Bruce. Yeah, I was plucked out of. Well, I'm not really. I was in about three bands. You were always in loads of bands in those days. Sure. Everyone was, and I just went and made Bruce's record, and I was only there for about six weeks, and then. Andy left the Soft Boys, and I'd already just felt that it wasn't really for me this corporate mm-hmm. uh, record company thing. So I, but I'd met Tom Dolby because Thomas Dolby was in that group in Bruce's backing band. Oh, okay. And so that's where I met Thomas. And okay. but anyway, so Thomas stayed on, and they went and toured America and everything. And a guy called Nigel Ross Scott joined the band, and. He was famous for being one of the only people to... Now, do you remember K-Tail Records? Sure, of course. Yeah. Well, well there was sub-K-Tail. There was, for, for things like restaurants and stuff, a lot of people in those days used to re-record hits mm. to get around needle time. You'd re-record a hit with faceless musicians, mm-hmm. and then you'd, you'd, play, you'd sell it off to restaurants, these re-recordings... Yeah. And you didn't have to pay some kind of publishing. I think it was performance publishing. So there was quite a big business in re-recording hits and doing sub-versions. But Nigel is one of the only people I know who played on the sort of copy sub-version of his own hit. <laughs> this is, <laughs> yeah, Because he, after Bruce, he didn't last long in Bruce either. He went off and joined a band called Reflex. I love it. Yes, it's called the, the politics of dancing. I've had Baxter on this show. I love that. <laughs> okay, <them>. right. Yeah. <laughs> so well, funny. Nigel went from Bruce to that. I went from Bruce to the Soft Boys. Sort of opposite directions. Really. Wow. I love it. See, you're, uh, you're <laughs> saying all this. I mean, '80s British alternative music. That is absolutely my wheelhouse. And so yeah? all of these right. inner workings, people <laughs> leaving this band for that band, my heart just keeps bursting every time you say these names. Well, none of it really lasted very long, you know, and we didn't stick around. We were all mo- fast movers, really, which is nice. I think it was a, it was nice to be like that. So were you an official member of the Soft Boys, or were you just sort of helping out for one album? I mean, I know it came. No, I I joined. I was. Um, okay. I did actually join Andy, 
So the Soft Boys had, their career was like through thin and thin in those days. And they, they'd, um, they'd, they'd started the, uh, obscure and gone down from that point. <laughs> <clears throat> and so, but it was, everyone knew Robin was talented and they'd done this great sort of, one of their best records is their first single EP on Raw Records. Mm. And um, Radar Records, which was Elvis Costello's label, signed them up. But they were never able to record anything that Radar thought was releasable. Hmm. Being signed was kind of their high point, but they never released anything. And they, they kind of started falling apart a bit. And Andy, their bass player, left to join a band called Telephone Bill and the Smooth Operators. That one I'm not familiar with. Well, they were a kind of country band, but they had a, a they were appearing on the BBC, I think, or something that made it a better proposition. And I, I, I at that point thought, I don't know, Rob, I'd been around Cambridge and stuff. And so when Andy left, I, th I think Robin asked me and I just said yes straight away. Mm. Wow. We, we, but I just tended to say yes straight away to everything anyway, which is how I was in three bands. Right. But I was very happy. And I went up to Cambridge and I used to go up. I still carry on living with my mum in London, but I go up to Cambridge, spend weekends or sometimes weeks there and rehearse a bit and live in both cities. Mm -hmm. We started sort of doing gigs, but they were still on their downward path. And uh, I remember after I joined and we ended, we ended up doing a gig at the, what used to be called the music machine with one light mm. shining us because you, you had to pay for light shows in those days <laughs> and we couldn't afford one. We didn't, so we didn't pay. And so they just shone one light at us and no one applauded, which was normal. And then in the dressing room afterwards, Robin looked at me and said, you should never have come here. You shouldn't. <laughs> and I thought, cause I just, I thought that was a, that was a, a sort of a, a twist. Uh, but he's, I think he's Pisces, it's Scorpio, isn't it? Sting mm. in the tail. Yeah. So that was his Scorpio moment. But Interesting. But actually after that, we, we, we did those rehearsals and started rehearsing in a boathouse by the river in Cambridge. And he started writing all these great, much poppier songs because I think he was a bit hurt by what had happened with Radar. And they'd been writing this very complex material. And... Robin just seemed to want to do pop songs. And I was into the Beatles much more than all this, this kind of folky stuff that they liked. I just okay. liked the Beatles and pop. And I think maybe when groups work like that, it's a kind of chemistry. And when someone joins, you probably instinctively, you all play to please each other, don't you? Yeah. So group chemistry does change the kind of music you do. And I think we had a kind of much more of a meeting point in pop because because Kimberly was actually very into the Beatles too. Yeah. And so sudden, and Robin must have picked up this different sort of resonance, started writing things like The Queen of Eyes and I Want to Destroy You, which were much poppier, really.
I couldn't play all these weird time signatures like Andy could. So I played more simply just because I had to. It wasn't a question of taste. Right. <laughs> it was my only way of keeping up with them. Well, I was going to say, would you have ever guessed when you were kind of plucking away on the Underwater Moonlight album that today that thing would be considered a lost classic, you know? Yeah, no, I don't think so. I think I, I remember really being happy because it was bruce's i'd done a few sessions but it was the first record i made a proper whole mm. record mm -hmm. although i wasn't on all the tracks because um kimberly played bass on one i think okay i got the hots i think they'd recorded that and another track before i joined but i i later i'd overdubbed and i got the hots but i was on kind of most of it and it felt like my first record and so I had no expectations really, except just to make it. Yeah. But um, I don't think, you know, we were just us, you know, no one ever came to our gigs. So <laughs> I didn't really think how, have any idea how we could sort of make it or anything. I guess we must have kind of got our hopes up a bit when we went to New York. And in a way, that's what broke the band up because getting your hopes up always does. Yeah, true. So, so we went to New York, we met Tim Summer and did a few things but again like nothing happened and that must have been kind of the end of 1980 and i i think we just thought probably if you if some bit of you knows you made a good record and still nothing's happening yeah the disappointment it's is accelerated yeah. it's well it wasn't it just accelerated and uh but when you when you were saying just before you turn the recorder on well, how do people have careers and stuff? That's a lesson in point, actually, because the, the, what you've just got to do is keep going. And uh, as Roger Daltrey said, for bands, the trick is don't split up. Mm. That's obviously what The Who did. Yeah. And yeah. that's a, a case in point. You know, uh, if we hadn't split up, we'd have, we'd have probably got some recognition. But we didn't, you know, we only lasted about a year while I was in them. Yeah which isn't really long enough to give it a chance. You've got no. to give it five, ten years, you know. Right, right. So, okay, so around the same, I mean, within a year, basically, you're doing this, you're doing Thomas Dolby, and you're doing the Thompson Twins. Is this a, is this a, a factor of you bouncing around, as you mentioned earlier? Or were you, yeah. was one thing ending and you were quickly getting a new job? How is all, How are all these things stacking up? How are they happening? I was probably scared of musical intimacy. So, <laughs> so I, 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 you know, I left so many bands that it must have been me, not them. No. Maybe I was kind of a, a kind of greedy to make records. You know, I used to love recording because it was kind of immortality. 
right. feeling, putting something down forever. So I don't know what it was, but I I never, although they're all friends now, Robin and Tom, at the time, I never thought anything would last forever. We, it was a little bit, what's that word, Welch, and there's a, there's a German word for worldview. Mm. Maybe 80% of it was me, but 20% of it, which it's always hard to describe about those times, but the first half of the 80s, we really thought there might be a huge war between, we lived in the shadow of the bomb. Mm. And it's it's very hard to describe what that's like, but it, it kind of shortens expect the future. Mm. And sure. you, you tend to try and, you, you don't do anything for too long in, in that kind of age, in that kind of era. We all felt like that. We thought Interesting. there might, you know, we didn't think the wall was about to come down, but the biggest historical event in my life it isn't 9-11. It's the, it's the Berlin Wall coming down. Yeah. Uh, because that, that had actually divided Europe. Mm-hmm. And it was a huge, a hugely unexpected event. But it ended a period of thinking that Russia uh, and the West were going to destroy each other, maybe. Mm-hmm. And in that, with that as the kind of backdrop, it, it's easier to understand if I think back why I maybe didn't stay in bands long. Really? Just a general maybe no one did. Yeah, general restlessness for everybody. Um, yeah. Who knows what's around the corner? Yeah, makes sense. You you might find that a lot of you know there. Uh, I don't know if you, a lot of bands didn't last long. It'd be interesting to know what percentage did, you know. Yeah, yeah good point. So what then, so are you on She Blinded Me With Science? Do you play that song? Yeah. Really? Yeah. about so that was so we skipped the thompson twins which is fine by me oh i and, no, I'm sorry, no i'm sorry i'm going according to no no i like it i love to skip the thompson twins no let's not um, skip the comp that's the one i want to ask you about i oh, okay. thought they were in reverse order no okay. the um after the soft boys uh i was still playing with kevin armstrong and local heroes and i played with kevin i still do actually all our lives but uh, he he'd he'd made an album for Charlie Gillett, the guy I mentioned at the beginning, mm-hmm. called uh, Drip Dry Zone, and he was squatting in Clapham with the Thompson Twins, and they used to do gigs together. So I would play on in the support slot with Kevin, and the Thompson Twins would be the main act. And there reached a time when 
I'd I'd left the soft boys by now, and Robin was still on his downward spiral, and it was tough for Robin actually. He used to drink a bit, and but he always he kept going. You see, he did. That's the basic rule: keep going, don't split up. And when you're reduced to just when there's just one of you, you can't split up. So he just kept going with himself. But anyway, uh, I'd been playing with Kevin, supporting the Thompson Twins, and somehow I transitioned. Tom Bailey decided to stop playing bass, and mm. I came in to play his bass parts. And then they made a new record, and, and I, I got to play my own for a while. Weren't they originally just a bunch of people? And it, and it all yeah. scaled down to just the three of them and ultimately the two? They were abandoned Sheffield they came to London and expanded to about seven of them and a bit of a commune living in this squat in Clapham okay when I joined them and then there was a kind of internal coup by the manager when they started to get a hit mm. and that that kind of um that led to the just the three of them actually Tom Bailey made the records and the other two sort of did other things and they be they became a kind of um a mo quite a modern pop act and and did some quite uh, ahead of their time things like the shadow dancing. Mm -hmm. I um, I actually really like that set album that you play on, and you oh, have a, yeah. you have a writing credit on um, in the name of love, correct? Yeah. Okay. Is is that the only song you contributed to on that album, or were you doing other things? Well, that was the someone said. You know, have you? Do you do you make records or do you play or stuff? I don't. Jam? I'm not a musician, no. Oh, but often there's this phenomenon at the end of a record when you've recorded everything you're gonna record, you get this kind of free bonus track that appears out of nowhere, <laughs> that someone's just written or a few ideas get thrown together, and that's what in the name of love was. We'd finished the record, and Tom just Tom Bailey just had this riff. Da, 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 da. So we threw it together much more as a band, and that's why we all got a credit on that. I think oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> it was at the end of the record, and but we we immediately knew it was better than anything else we just recorded. <laughs> that that happens so often. The toss toss yeah. song you make when you're not thinking about it ends up yeah. being the hit, probably because you're the most free mentally and creatively because you're not under any pressure. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, I've just often noticed it at, at the end of projects yeah. something just pops out and that can often be like that that happens a lot well i love yeah. that album and i think they were so i've always loved them and i have opinions about them but to me they're a band that didn't take care good enough care of their legacy and so they get forgotten about i know tom's back out there now finally kind of yeah what's he doing what's he up to well he's sort of finally uh for better or worse be, started to embrace his legacy a little bit he plays some of those 80s nostalgia tours i was able to see him about three or four years ago with howard jones out here ah. in the states um he had been doing yeah. you know he had been focusing on producing for a long time and never wanting to look back but i think now that it, what happens even though that might be artistically satisfying to him i think what happens is that people forget that the Thompson Twins were a great band and they had great songs because he and Alana are not necessarily nurturing that history anymore, you know? Yeah. So it's it kind of forgotten about. But those earlier days, like the set album, especially gets forgotten. People don't even know that there was an earlier version that was a yeah. lot funkier and 
almost African. One of my, in fact, maybe my favorite Thompson Twin song of all is Good Gosh, which is on. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. I love that yeah, song. That's fun. That's weird. Yeah. It was a much more communal effort, but probably they made the right move for for make, getting pop hits because the songs like I like Hold Me Now. I put it on the other day. I had sure. a some kind of request or something. I don't really like Doctor Doctor, and yeah. but Hold Me Now was was a nice song. And Tom Tom was a bit like the other Tom that I knew, Thomas Dolby. He was very talented, basically all in one musician. Hmm. Yeah, I could see that. Um, so was it acrimonious when you left Thompson Twins? Did you care? Yeah, uh, I was. I was trying not to mention that. Oh, okay. <laughs> I okay. mean, only because I've I've mentioned it before, but um, it was it was dishonest, I suppose. I I think I don't mind. I mean, I don't want to say that in any bitter way, but just to be factual, what happened was dishonest. We can leave it. I don't know. I've, no, I've, I, I mean, I, your lawyers will stop you broadcasting yeah. that. <laughs> no, but it's easy. To, it's easy to explain. We had a we had a band meeting, and they said they were going to. Uh, well, the back story to that was that in the name of love was starting to was getting to the top of the Billboard charts in America, which mm-hmm. wasn't on sales. It was on plays by DJs, mm-hmm. and I think. We we knew that had happened, but we didn't really know what it meant. And I think Arista, we were on Hansa. Arista, the big label, m- might have suggested, look, why don't you take uh, Tom and form a smaller unit because this hippie commune thing isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. And there was a big band meeting, and um, we 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 were told that they were all going to go off and form a new project called the Bermuda Triangle. I remember that's what it was called. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and this was a device, uh, for some reason, and we weren't suspicious, we had to sign an agreement, the rest of us, where we were promised not to play together again <laughs> with each other. And the devi- this was a device to, to take the name and the act and go and uh, pursue it elsewhere. But they, they, the sad bit was that my cousin was one of the lawyers but he was just a little, he was slightly incompetent because oh, no. 
he forgot to dissolve the partnership. Uh. And we were all still partners. And mm. about 10 years later, I, this had festered inside me long enough to make me want to become a barrister. Oh, did and you become so, a barrister? Yeah, I did. Really? I went and trained. I went and trained uh, up at college and made myself into a barrister. And the first thing I wanted to do was sue the band. <laughs> and <laughs> I remember mentioning to the accountant, "Well, what about the partnership?" And he he quickly stopped speaking to me and referred me to the lawyer. But the lawyer was my cousin, Julian Turton, but only cousin by marriage. I think he knew about this, what he'd forgotten to do, and he just got Tom to phone me up. And so Tom phoned me up this 10 years later and said, come on, Matthew, you, uh, we don't want to do all that. And, you know, and I kind of agreed. And it was, just took one nice phone call from Tom and I, <laughs> I just backed off. But, Let bygones be bygones. Interesting. Well, it, I don't, I, you know, I don't think suing people is a good way to yeah. live. Yeah. It's like it's kind of like if you're going to the dentist, but instead of waiting there for ten minutes, you wait there for two years. Good point. It's it's a horrible thing to wait for, and yeah. uh, I don't I don't really recommend it. Not okay. to myself, anyway. Okay. So okay. <laughs> so again, we've we've touched on Soft Boys, Thompson Twins, Thomas Dolby. Which, by the way, I got to say, the Flat Earth is one of my favorite albums of all time. And I think it. I think it's it's separate as against the Thompson Twins. I I I, I veer on the side of Flat Earth as what the yeah. kind of thing that I like in music. Yeah. Well, and you are all over that thing. I mean, especially My, like yeah. the first side, the first couple tracks. It's you're the magic of those tracks in a lot of ways. was a little uh, yeah but uh, uh, the thing with tom was that he would write his the bass lines mostly Mm. so i have to uh, i was you know happy to play a lot of them but um hugely guided by tom okay but i think that album doesn't date in the way that the thompson twins does and i think that's the trick of things that are well produced they they stand the test of time more and I, I think it, if you listen to it now, it, it kind of hasn't dated in the same way as perhaps Dr. Doctor has. I agree. Um, I know that you know, everyone wanted to uh, blinded me with science part two, and that is absolutely yeah. not what that album is. Yeah. But now it's, you listen to it now, and it's so mature, and it's a, it's a beautiful headphone album. If you, you know, 
Yeah. There's so much going on sonically that people aren't realizing. And it's a shame that it kind of, I think at the time got lost in the shuffle a little bit, you know? Yeah. It's, it, uh, yeah. The Thompson Twins are better at that, about following their market. Mm. Uh, and um, Tom, like any good artist, wanted to change, you know, wanted to not follow, wanted every step to be a new step. And so that wasn't She, she Blinded Me With Science Part 2. We didn't, I didn't play any Moog on that. Science and Submarines mm-hmm. had, um, I, I don't know, by the way, on this interview, do you play, do you play um, music? <laughs> we do. It's funny you okay. say that. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you an interesting thing to do. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll tell you an interesting thing to do. Of two of the records we've played, play Coastline off set. Okay. And then play one of our submarines. Hmm. And tell me if you notice any similarities between the bass lines. Okay. Ooh, interesting challenge. We'll play both of them back to back right here <laughs> for the listeners. That'll be great. Yeah. Okay.
Cool. <laughs> um, but but anyway, that, that I'd done all that with the Moog, uh, wow. but even I didn't notice I was playing the same notes on one as on the other because I did it with the Moog. And, and Tom used to give me challenges like learn to play Moog or learn to play fretless. There's another interesting thing you could do with the fretless, actually. There's a song on the Tom's his first album called The Price. Okay. Their first album is called, is it a called Squares of. and... A product of, yeah. Product of. Well, well Thomas, Tom Bailey's playing bass on The Price. And if you listen to the, the bass line on that, there's a kind of idea about the way the notes are, are put together. And then you play Screekis you again might hear something interesting. Really? Yeah, but none of this was um, cannibalism or anything. It's it just the fact that we all lived, you know, we circulated and sure. Tom used to come to all these gigs and stuff. And I, I think he, he, you know, Screenkiss is infinitely better and more beautiful than, for example, The Price. Mm. But he's obviously heard a clue in something that Tom did and but put it together uh, in an incredibly much more artful way. Yeah. That's how, why pop music is a cult, is a society. It's a culture. Yeah, it's not just about individual bands, but them all mixing together. I could see and that influencing each other. Yeah, absolutely. which I actually think is fine. I think it's lovely. Absolutely. Um, okay, the next credit, nineteen eighty five, the Water Boys. This is the sea. That's another all time favorite album of mine. How did wow. this happen? Is that is that nineteen eighty five? Okay. I think um, so. Uh, okay, so that here. that would be through 
Robin, really, because when Robin went solo, he recruited Anthony Thistlethwaite, a sax player, mm. to play uh, a few bits and pieces. Anthony also played guitar, and I think at the venue when we played with fish heads on for Robin, mm -hmm. Anthony was playing guitar and saxophone that night. And he later joined the Waterboys. Ah. And but 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 before he actually when he met Mike he they formed a band together called the Red and the Black and I played with that band for a while hmm. before I shot off on my I was a bit like that bloke on um, in is it Sirens of Titan there's a bloke who's who's a he he, he exists in waveform <laughs> and he oscillates between Pluto and the Sun once every fifty six days. <laughs> And every once every fifty-six days, he comes through wherever they are, Titan. So I was on an oscillation of, but for for for, for that one of those fifty-six days, I was in the red and the black. Got it. And that's how I met them. And then on my return oscillation, uh -huh. fifty-six days later, uh -huh. I played on a couple of tracks on "This Is the Sea." Which ones? Um, I love that well, one so much. Actually, are you I on think, "Hole of the Moon"? No, no, I'm only on Be My Enemy. I think I was on another one that wasn't released. Uh, I, I think I did the, a couple. Okay, I have the deluxe edition of that. So if you with extra tracks and everything. So if you remember the name of that song, tell me and I'll we'll put well, it, it was, in here. I remember a song called Medicine Bow, but I don't oh, think sure. it got released on that record.
probably by the time he released it, he'd, he'd met another bass player and recorded it again. But I think I played on that one. Okay. But but I met Carl the other day, Carl Wallinger. He's down in Hastings now, living very near Kevin Armstrong. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I've always wondered he's about a, him too. Oh, yeah. He's lovely, Carl. Um, he just, he, he's got, you know, set up down there and he's trying to record and trying to make an album, I think. Huh. So he's going to write. I might have to contact him. I'd love to talk yeah. to him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you should on Facebook. I yeah. mean, he's my Facebook friend. Okay. I'll find him on there. Yeah. Um, so were you an official, you weren't official, an official member of the Waterboys, you were just brought in? No, I was in, I was in the Red and the Black, and we did a song called Red Army Blues as well, I remember. That, that was a BBC session. I did a BBC session with them, with Mike, as Red and the Black. Oh. I remember I used to try and write songs, and I had this, this song called The Crash of Angels, or The Crash of Angel Wings. And Mike always loved that t title. He said, can I borrow that? I said, yeah, sure, fine. But just make sure you credit me. <laughs> and um, it was very sad. I saw Mike a couple of years ago, but, you know, we reached that part of our lives when you only ever meet at funerals. You used to meet sure. at weddings. Mm -hmm. Now you meet at funerals. Um, and this lovely guy, Mark Smith, had died, who was, who's a, a bass player, great bass player, who gave me my only two bass lessons I ever had. And he later played with Mike. Mm. And uh, we met after we were talking, and Mike said, oh, by the way, I, I credited you for that song, Crash of Angel Wings. I wrote it. <laughs> he, he took the title and wrote it 20 years later. Wow. Yeah. So oh, if man. you ever come across that song, okay, uh, I have never looked it up to see if I have got a credit, but I you might probably have it somewhere. I like a lot of their <laughs> stuff. I'll have to look for it. That's fascinating. So that was the Water Boys okay. in '85. Okay. Uh, next up, now you're still working with Thomas on Aliens Ate My Viewers and stuff like that, but I want to ask you about 
uh, just briefly, Transvision Vamp. I don't, I don't uh. claim to be an expert or anything, but I remember very well when Tell That Girl to Shut Up was being played on the radio a lot. Were you yeah. on that song? Yeah, I was. That was lovely, but that was a there was a bloke called Mark who made up that beautiful bass intro. Mm. I can't remember. He was Holly Holly Vincent's boyfriend in Holly and the Italians, yep. and also her bass player. Okay. And they Holly wrote that song, and yep. they recorded a great version of it again for Charlie Gillett and Oval Records, who keeps coming up. Charlie's yeah. the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, well, he is one of these guys. It was a scene. Okay. So that record was on Oval Records. Um, but I, so I knew, we knew, and she knew Kevin as well. I remember Holly. I, I bumped into Holly about 10 years ago. It was lovely to see her. In, I'm Facebook friends with her too, and I keep meaning ah, to bring her on here, and I just haven't done it yet. She's great. She's, she's a drummer, and I tried to get her the drum when, when the soft boys were in Los Angeles, but Romy didn't want her to. Mm. <laughs> mm. Okay. So that didn't happen. Right. But, um, uh, that was her song, and, and then the Vamps wanted to copy it, and they had this lovely guy, Zoyce Beheld, who was, I think, the keyboard player in Cannes, producing, oh. and that was in a little studio off Goldbourne Road, right up at the top of Labrick Grove, where the, the floats gather for the carnival mm. every, every end of August. And there was a great studio there, and that was just a simple session. They said, please learn the bass for Tell That Girl to Shut Up, and I just went along and played it. There you go. And the song gets played on the radio. And that's yeah, crazy. it was lovely. Yeah. I loved that. I I thought that was a lovely bit of pop. Yeah. Uh, yeah and I'm really song. sad. I, I really thought that would do well. I, I don't understand sometimes why records don't make it. I never know either. And it's a common theme on this podcast, too, because we'll talk to I'll talk to somebody who was in a band whose sound is very similar to a band that's really super famous and popular at the time. But for whatever yeah. reason, they're not super famous and popular. And it's like, well, they're just as good. What's the issue? Why would you not just get it all out there and let people enjoy it? But for whatever reason, politics. To me, it, yeah. Or, or maybe the charts were all hyped or something. But maybe. I, th you know, I thought that was a great bit of pop, you know, yeah. energy and stuff. Yeah, I like that song a lot. Okay. Now, here we come on a big one for me personally. Uh, Peter Murphy, the Love Hysteria album. Um, ah. uh, Indigo Eyes yeah, is my, I like this song. that's my number four favorite song of all time. 
And yeah. uh, are you playing on that entire album? How did you? No, play? no. Okay. So that was um, I, I think because of playing fretless for for Thomas, I I was seen as a fretless player, which I wasn't really. I I just it, like I said earlier, was, Tom just used to have these little special project mission, your mission, should you choose to accept it. Uh-huh. And so, but I would, sometimes people would ask me to come in and, and kind of replace Mick Khan, who was a fretless player. Oh. And um, I think Peter Murphy had, had been playing a bit with Mick Khan and either wanted something different or couldn't get in for the session. And so I would have probably been on a list of, people who it was thought could play fretless. So I'd always go and try. And Indigo Eyes is okay, but I would be sitting there playing very nervously, you know, because mm. thinking I can't really play fretless and mm. just trying to do my best. But I thought Indigo Eyes worked pretty okay. I love that song. I think it's a beautiful song. And Proud of that, and yeah. Peter was a lovely guy. I remember him for his, for what a lovely guy he was. His courtesy, and oh. he was a gentleman. He was a real gent gentleman. Good. Okay, I love and him. I've quite, seen him in concert many times and stuff. Yeah, and it's funny for someone with such a scary, kind of, goth punk, visage. He was such a gentle guy. Good. So what yeah. do you play on that album? And then secondly, what does fretless bass even mean? I mean, I, I can envision a br bass without frets, but what's the sound? What are people going for when they choose that over a regular bass? The, to answer the, the first bit of the question, I just played the fretless, which is tracks on that album, which is about two or three tracks, because he had a regular fretted bass player who was at the session, who was a nice mm. guy. Fretless it was very much part of the 80s. It was a tone, and it was more middly and kind of languid. It just sounds, it's hard to explain. Okay. okay. Um, let me think. No, <laughs> Music's, okay. well, no, it's, it's, I like trying to explain music because it's like someone says, describe red. <laughs> how, can, <laughs> how do you describe a color? Yeah. The fretless has a, when you hear it, you know, you know it's, it's very, um, it's buzzier, actually. Mm, okay. Um, and it sounds more like, actually more like a horn, like a, a trumpet or a, a saxophone. And I guess people were going for a slightly jazzier, thicker, and more sustained feel. It, maybe fretless was halfway between normal bass and a synthesized bass. Yeah, maybe. Okay. And there was probably a feeling that it fitted better with keyboards. 
Okay. Definitely more languid and kind of sleepy, lyrical, lyrical. Okay. And usually melodic. There's no point getting a fretless just to go da 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 da. Yeah. You usually give it a more melodic line. Okay. Okay, good to know. And you can't remember, you don't know the names of any songs on that album you played on? Yeah, there was something, Socrates. Oh, uh, that's Python. I, that's my least favorite song on that album, actually. <laughs> I like everything Which, else on that album. Something, yeah, I think I remember that. And uh, there would have been two or three. There was Dragnet Drag. That's another one of my no. favorites from that album. Mm. There's uh, All Night Long, which was kind of a popular song. Mm. Blind oh. Sublime, Fun Time. Oh, that was, I think, Blind Sublime. I okay. remember. That might have been the other one. you worked with Morrissey? Yeah, that was nice. Was it? Yeah, that, this is Kevin again. Kevin was there. Kevin was still a Buddhist in those days, so okay. he would he was chant. We went to stay in a, a kind of resi- residential studio. We'd worked with Clive Langer when we worked with Bowie, because Clive Langer had produced David Bowie for the Absolute Beginners movie. I love that song and movie and everything. Yeah, we so Kevin and me and Clive Langer all met on that session, and when he got to produce Morrissey, I think he just thought we could help. Mm. So we went up to some. I think they had two studios then, Clive and his business partner, and one of them was in the countryside. And I remember going up there, and I remember Kevin chanting, mm. and we were up there for two nights. Two days, and Morrissey. I remember Morrissey. I said hello, and he said, "Should I have heard of you?" <laughs> and I, and I, I didn't. I said probably not, uh-huh. which was right. Uh-huh. And we did Ouija board and Yes, I'm Blind and East West, a Herman Hermit's cover.
And that was a straight session. Just a, I think Ouija board we'd had a tape of, but the other two they just taught us when we were up there and we kind of played them. And there was this drummer called Andrew Parese and we played a bit of tennis. Oh, nice. And that was that, really, just a couple of days up there. And they gave me a dressing gown. At least I'd, I left with a dressing gown. I don't know if they gave it to me or not. <laughs> but I had this lovely white dressing gown with outside written on it. I think okay. they gave it to us. So let me uh, let me ask you a little bit about the business side because that's something we try to touch on sensitively here too is you know how people pay their bills. I'm mentioning right. I'm, I'm giving a laundry list here, and these are only the songs that I know and love. There's other things yeah. that you've done. Are you? I'm assuming you're maintaining a nice living as a session musician at this point, being kind of called in to play here and there. Mm, well, no, I I no, I, I don't think. Um... No, I'm not. I don't work as a musician anymore. But then, uh, at the time, were you oh, yeah, able then. to pay your yeah. bills then? Yeah, definitely. Okay. There was yeah. uh, w w When you're close to the point at which you make the records, people still remember they owe you royalties and stuff. But mm -hmm. as the decades passed, they kind of forget. Ah, okay. But um, th there would be a huge stuff. You know, I'd get a huge check sometimes from Tom. I remember getting a huge check. And not really knowing what to do with it. Mm. Um, and sessions in those days, I think we were well paid, you know. I remember uh, getting kind of hundreds of pounds, you know, an hour sometimes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there was plenty was, of money floating around for that kind of stuff. Then. It was a much bigger business then, yeah. 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 And uh, I, I, for about 15 years, I, I could earn my way as a professional musician sure. and pay me taxes and all that yeah it was fine did you ever tour with any of these people did you ever go play shows um yeah i mean tom we had a five-month tour that went all around europe and america okay the soft boys went over to america a few times and ran a few bits of europe but kind of after after the middle of the 80s i tended to be around london and just playing sessions and stuff more, okay. I think. Easier, right? You don't have to travel uh, and just show yeah, up, I play, just, get paid. Yeah, but that, that wasn't really what I wanted or expected to do, but it's kind of what happened. Mm. I think I think I always liked to think of myself as being in bands, but that was more the first half of the 80s. The second half, I know what happened. I know what went wrong. This is a fatal error. Oh, yeah, I started wanting to do my own stuff. <laughs> Go solo. Oh, God. Okay. Um, you know, I wanted, to, I got really into trying to write my own songs and stuff. That's what went wrong. I got it. Were you going to sing and everything and be the part yeah, band yeah, and yeah. band and all that? Yeah, it, was, it wasn't out of one, the exposure, but just a sort of creative wish to say my own sure, thing sure so that's a disastrous thing to do. <laughs> never, never you know I, my my career went great until i tried to take control of it hmm. and the point at which i tried to take control is the point at which 
it went in the other direction. Well, it makes sense. You're, you're supporting all these really talented, creative people, and you're probably thinking, I, I have some of these same talents and urges too. Why don't I get out there and do my own thing? Yeah, but it's a fatal error. And the other thing is that you start saying no uh, uh, instead sure. of yes, because yeah. in the early part of my career, I, like I said, I always just said yes to anything. And that, again, is a more interesting journey than uh, saying no to things. Right. Okay. But I, I started to sort of find reasons to say no. And uh, like for the vamps, I remember they, they wanted me to join them. And I, I, for some reason, thought that wasn't going to work. And mm. that, again, is a different energy from just saying yes. Yeah, yeah. And they're all just guesses anyway. You, you never really yeah. know how anything's going to work out. No, you're gambling on all these collaborations. Who knows what's going to be remembered, you know, down the yeah. line or make an impression yeah. then or ever. Yeah, okay. Um, now, you had mentioned royalty checks from Tom. I assume we're talking about Thomas Dolby. Other than yeah. In the Name of Love, what what are some of the songs that we would know that you have a co-writing credit on? I wasn't familiar with what those might be. Um, I don't I don't think so. Really anything special. Tom used to, is very good about always giving me a little bit of a co-write on oh, good. Okay. bits and pieces. Um I don't think I've ever really done more than I usually try and write my own baseline if they let me, okay. except with Tom. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people think that's made enough of a difference to the song to give you a bit of a co-write. But I didn't really write songs with people much. I wrote a bit with Bruce, but uh, and he has a theremin-based project called the Radio Science Orchestra. Oh. Which I think is he's regenerating at the moment, but um, and occasionally we'd write songs together, and I tend to do the lyrics, hmm. but I haven't really written with a lot of okay. people, so I don't think I don't think there's any okay <laughs> co-writes. Well, I wasn't there. sure. I mean, I was you know I didn't know to what degree you were collaborating with some of these people. Um, Just writing writing the baseline really, Got and it. sometimes that gives you a credit. Okay. Okay. Uh, now we got to jump into the 90s and yeah. uh, talk about stereo MCs because Connected is so good. And uh -huh. you're on that one too. Happy Mondays and bands like that are starting to kind of take over things.
from the like, yeah. psychedelic furs of the world or whatever. Were you adapting? Were you liking that kind of acid house music that's being played at that time? Um, well, yeah, you I didn't really like what you play on, or do you? Care? No. No. no, I don't. I just like to play bass. Okay. okay. <laughs> I don't really care. Yeah. Um, I should, maybe I should care, but um, as long as I can do a nice bit of uh, a bass and you can, you can fit it under loads of different things. I, I'm usually pretty uncritical, but if I had to choose, I'd, I'd say I preferred always to hear a guitar hmm. somewhere in the mix. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but actually Thomas always used to work with Kevin, so that was okay. Um, but just pure keyboard, really not so much my style. So in the 90s, music went in two ways. The, the, the guitar either got very heavy, you know, with right. the grunge people, mm-hmm. or or it disappeared entirely. Yeah. Um, and the stereo MCs were more in the second group of not really using guitar so much. Right. But uh, I used to love their loop. Nicky did a little loops. And uh, as I say, he, he and Rob Birch was the younger brother of Bruce Willie's guitarist. Okay. And Nick oh. Nick and the Birches had grown up together. They were all very close. That was they were all a bunch of friends from then. And I used to go down and sort of record bits of bass which Nick would then loop uh, over his drum loops. Okay. And sometimes they would re-record stuff as well. You'd they give you a record and say re-record it and then that's a way of taking a sample without incurring the wrath of their publishers. Okay. You can copy things. You just can't sample them. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Makes sense, I guess. Okay. Now, did you go out, did you do much else on with Stereo MCs or were you more of a studio contributor? Um, no, no, I never went on tour with them either. Okay. And and by the mid, uh, actually pretty early 90s, I'd, I'd, I'd gone back to law school and was studying to be a barrister. Okay. It was kind of all over then. But uh, since then, I've played a bit with Robin and a bit with Thomas. And done a, we actually did a Soft Boys tour in 2002. I saw then, one of those shows. Oh, great. I, I never connected the dots. I saw no. the Soft Boys in San Francisco in 2003. And oh, Slims? Right, was that yeah, Slims? Slims, right around Halloween. It was a day or two after yeah. Halloween. I still got the, yeah, I still got the recording from that night. It was a, it seemed like a good gig, actually. No way. Yeah. So I've seen you in concert. I didn't realize that. Oh. Wow. I never pieced that together. How was it? How was the, how did, how did the, how did it seem to you? How was it for you? Okay. That gig. You want to, okay, here's where I get open and honest. I have never come around to Robin, uh, Robin's music. I appreciate him. I know that he's very good at what he does, but it's never really spoken to me that much. And so because, yeah. And because of that, I was very late to the game with, um, the soft boys. And so at the, when I saw you in concert, a girlfriend, not a girlfriend, but a girl who was a friend of mine was visiting me in the Bay Area and she wanted to go. And we saw The Damned the night or two before and then we saw you guys. And I kind of went because she wanted to and I'd heard of you. And so I thought, uh, this is okay. It's really not my thing. It's only been in the last couple of years that I've finally embraced, at least, I'm still not 100% on Robin's solo stuff, but I love... Mm-hmm those soft boys albums and i've had kimberly on here he and i, I oh, interviewed him about a year ago 
Yeah. Oh, lovely. Sweet. Yeah. yeah. I saw Kimberly the other day. We we played King and Love in a pub. Really? Yeah. <laughs> he was great. What a story mm. on that guy too, with walking on sunshine yeah. and everything. Yeah, so, it's fantastic. Yeah, that's. I hate to admit it. That's my soft boy story. I, that's I okay. Okay. I was very late to the game. But uh, anyway. Okay, so the 90s. So then when did you make this decision to go to be a barrister? I mean, what brought um, that on? I don't know. It was just a test. Uh, there was different ways. I mean, um, again, you know, the true story is, is too ridiculous. So I can't really <laughs> say the truth. But um it can't, there's never there's usually three or four reasons why you make a life decision not not always just one and one of them i remember walking through the the courts in my old coat that i always used to wear even indoors and my doc martin boots and i don't know what i was doing in there but mm-hmm. i just loved the old building and i thought wouldn't it be great to work here mm. and uh I was just drawn to it a bit. I had this feeling of um, injustice, I think, because of what the kind of things I was talking about earlier. And I just thought it would be a nice, it would be a nice surprise for me and everybody else, really, if I could just change myself, really, and uh, turn from a sort of slightly running out of inspiration uh, bass player because. I'd, like you said, I started to do all these sessions and I really didn't think it suited me. You know, yeah. I liked to be in band and do something new. So I thought to go and read all those books and learn the law, I, it just kind of fascinated me. I thought I'd oh. give it a go. Okay. And it's a question of be careful what you wish for. <laughs> because I, I don't think I ever really, a bit like underwater moonlight, really. I didn't really expect it to work. Yeah. But it 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 did, and um, it's what I'm back doing now at the moment, and re- doing a lot of human rights law, and I, I really like that work. I like Good. it's quite rock and roll in a way. It's the same feeling of trying to change the world. Yeah, interesting. I don't know if you remember a British post post punk band called the Au Pairs. Yeah, I do remember that name. Okay, yeah. they had a their lead singer is a woman. Gail Abbott. No, no. Their lead singer was named Leslie Woods, and oh. she um, she's a lesbian, and which was a bigger deal back then. You know what I mean? So that was kind of a calling card for her. Anyway, she's a lawyer now too, and uh, oh, really? or a barrister or whatever too. And a very similar situation. Um, she works in, in the Opez. Why? Okay, a Gail advert was in the adverts. Yeah, not the Opez. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, so yeah, the Opez and. Wow, I'll have to instruct her. Yeah. <laughs> well, I I trained as a barrister, but I I kind of um, en- ended up leaving that to go to Japan. To and I came back into the law. Yeah, and I came back into the law and worked in solicitor's offices, which is what I'm doing at the moment too. Oh. And kind of enjoying it. A lot. Okay. And yet it sounds like you still play music when the opportunity comes up with friends or something like that like kimberly yeah i mean um i certainly do i play with kevin a bit and i uh you know sometimes i go out and uh it's kind of potluck sometimes if i beat bump into people who know some of the stuff i've done Mm -hmm. i i feel a bit like a hero for a few (laughs) hours (laughs) 
I, I try to practice every day, uh, so I'm still a bass player. I can still call myself one. Okay. Uh, and that's enough, really. I've, I, I've got a couple of projects of things I've done. I can send you some, actually, something I've just I'd love made. It. Yeah, we'll play a little bit of it. Oh, really? That's yeah. wonderful. <laughs> yeah, that's okay oh, with great. you. Yeah, yeah we'd, lo- we'd love it. We've just recorded it. Um, but it's my last chance to let you know. Double days to love a lot. Double days are all we've got. No matter better backwards says, how do you don't? I've been working with John Klein, who used to play guitar in the Banshees. Yes. And That's me and John, also with Budgie, worked with Thomas once on a on a track called Neon Sisters. I love Budgie. Yeah. Well, he's he and John were, were in the Banshees, and they were working in the same studios, No Miss, I think. And so, and I'd written this a bit of a, a one of those occasions when Tom gave me a bit of credit for some ba- bass. Mm that he'd taken and written into something. Mm-hmm. And so he, we got John and Budgie to play on this track called The Neon Sisters. I think it might be on Astronauts and Heretics, I'm not sure. Anyway, so now John and I are working together, and we've decided to call this project the Neon Sisters. Nice. And we're working with uh, a couple of Australians that we've never met. Oh. <laughs> uh, who's who's Paul? They're both called Paul, actually, but we had to separate. We right. had to insist they got different names. So right. one of one's called Paul. He's this lovely bass player, um, and we try and do double bass on a couple of tracks by which i mean two basses but also and the other pool we call the professor he's just kind of in charge of noises okay and stuff wow. so i'll send it i'll send it to you yeah i'd love to hear that yeah 
It's got to be That'd fun. Be great. If yeah. you um, if you if you play it, it'll be our first bit of airplay because it's never been released yet. So. There we go. Breaking breaking news right here. So it must be fun for you to have. I mean, I can speak as somebody who has a regular job and then gets to do something creative on the side that's actually yeah. more fulfilling. That's that's got to feel good for you to still have this outlet to play with mu- play music with people you care about on your terms. Uh, it's expectations more than, it's, in check, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, deep down, I, creativity is my biggest urge, really. Mm-hmm. But I haven't let it kind of hijack my life. And you've got to work, you know, you've got to have a job and you can't always earn money from creativity. So I haven't minded learning to do the law or out in Japan I was teaching, but it's actually my highest sort of calling uh, is to create. And uh, so I must, it's something I have to do. That's great. Just to live. Yeah. To breathe. Well, that's true for everybody. And your work has, I mean, you sought it out later in life. It's got, I'm assuming it's pretty satisfying for you. Yeah. Uh, there's, uh, there's lots of, uh, I work a bit with friends in Brighton, a guy called Mark Headley. Um, I, I do, with, I do still try and do my own stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that disastrous. Well, you know, it's, it's wonderful how little of it has ever gone anywhere. Yeah, well, but I can't give up. It's yeah. it's again. It's an urge. It's good. an urge. Good. Okay. Um, I my and wife, I love playing. I love playing bass. Too. Good. Still do. My wife will be mad if I don't ask you about Tori Amos. You played on oh, Little yes. Earthquakes, right? And then I got to ask you about Sinead O'Connor too. So okay. two other ones. So tell me about Tori. Uh, okay. Um, well, Tori was fantastic. That again was just a, someone asked me to come and play on their record what was it called China the song was called China okay China all the way to New York I can feel the someone phones you up you know and you get offered asked to come and play uh, i later played with her on, on a, a cover version she did of ring my bell but she was lovely oh, very very nice person and good. very talented nice to meet you know yeah, friendly yeah. Uh, energetic and talented good 
and how about Sinead? Ah, well, I think I'm blocked at the moment. <laughs> Um, I, I, <laughs> I no, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's fine. Um, I mean, Portionade. Uh, anyway, I, I think that you can get with Sinead, You know, uh, I, you can get beheaded. It's off with their heads. You know, sometimes if they say the wrong thing. So, yeah, okay. I think I said the wrong thing on Facebook. So, off with my head. Oh boy. I have to accept my punishment. Yeah. She's a fantastic singer. You know, I loved I I loved being able to play with her a couple of times a long long time ago. Yeah. What a what a tortured soul she seems like and it's uh it's a real shame. I don't know if you saw this video that came out recently of her. She's been living in a hotel in New Jersey or something for a couple of years contemplating yeah. suicide. It's so sad. It's an illness she has. Yeah. She's mentally ill and she knows and she's got to recover and she's trying her best you know yeah. and uh, unfortunately to do it in the spotlight can't can't be easy at right. all right so a lot of this loss of inhibition you know and uh, stuff goes along with the illness yeah yeah it's a shame but also she she i think all creative people see and experience perfection much more than a lot of us yeah and the difference between the perfection that they they have they can get close to or they can at least imagine and the real world around them can be very painful yeah so uh, they a lot of her pain you know is it might, might come from her creativity and uh, the perfect world that she doesn't live in. Yeah. Yeah. Real life versus creative uh, fantasy, not fantasy life, but there, there's just such a, if there's that big of a gap between. Well, they sense, it's kind of what part of the urge, this sense of perfection that, that they can think they can get close to. And we sense they have got close to, which is what the magic in their work. Yeah. Yeah, it's a shame. I think okay. everyone, someone like, you know, you need to find a good partner sometimes to get you through this, these stormy uh, waters. Yeah. And if you don't, you, if you don't, you 
mental illness and stuff gets a lot harder to bear. But again, mental illness drives people away. It drives partners away. Yeah. No one likes them. No one. Uh, a lot of my law is is for mental. They're my clients, and mm-hmm. um, one of the sad things about mental illness is that it's isolating. Yeah. It drives people away. And sometimes the, one of the worst prejudices that people have who are mentally ill is is the prejudice against their own illness. True. They hate that they're mentally ill. They, they, it's humiliating. They shouldn't be, but they see yeah. it that way. And yeah. one of the first prejudices you need to get rid of in that situation is the you know, your hatred of your own illness. It's true. It's a, it's a really, it's, it's a conflicted dichotomy too, because at those times when people with the mental illness or depression or bipolar or whatever, probably need someone the most. And yet that's when they are the most off putting to people or the most needy, you know, it's uh, people not in their same frame of mind only have so much, kind of compassion or maybe even endurance to deal with some of this stuff and uh, they need more and they can't get it. And it's, it's a, it's a vicious circle seems like sometimes for people, but, but, it, but it's funny, even now, you know, you, uh, there's a little couple of test questions. You, you ask someone um, that I use, you ask someone that would you get through your life without a physical illness? And they'll say, no, of course I won't, you know, I'll get flu, I'll bring. And then, uh, you know, 100% of people say, yeah, um, no, I won't. I won't get through my life without a physical illness. And then uh, will you get through your life without a mental illness? Mm. And the same 100%, or maybe not 100% anymore, but it used to be, will say, yes, of course I will. But it's it's completely untrue. Yeah. You 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 get mental illnesses. Everybody gets them all the time at d- different scales, from a bit of depression to a complete breakdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, no one will get through life without mental illness. Yeah. But we all think we do, and it's just it's complete denial that, yeah. that we live in. Yeah, it's a tough tough. Uh situation to be in okay on a lighter note i always try to close these things out with um you know i want to hear your best story Uh, you've worked with so many interesting personalities and uh, done so many great songs at least in my book what is when you sit back and you're being a barrister or you're in your office and you think i can't believe this happened to me what's that thing that happened to you that's live aid ah you played at live aid yeah, because with what was with Bowie? Oh, yeah, yeah. So what was great about that was that it was almost exactly Andy Warhol's 15 minutes of fame. <laughs> it, it actually I've timed it at 17 minutes. <laughs> so and for 17 minutes I played with my hero, my biggest hero in front of the whole world. It was like a you know one of those sort of TV shows where they say they make a dream come true, you know. Yeah, yeah. And f- so for those seventeen, and it was lovely. It was Andy Warhol's slot. Yeah. Um, we yeah we did four songs at Live Aid, and Kevin was playing there too, and a lot of and Thomas was there, 
uh, it was a lot of the people I've been talking about, mm-hmm. and it was just a, a great day, and I still dine out on it. And I bet. He's my hero, too. Did you know him very well before or after? We, we'd met the previous Christmas when we were doing a couple of film tracks for Absolute Beginners. Oh, right, right. Okay. I didn't know if you'd because... actually interacted with him. Okay. No, we we just it, he just signed to EMI, which was Thomas's label. So it was arranged the label. He wanted to use some London musicians because his band at that time was in America, mm-hmm. but Absolute Beginners was a very London-based film, so it was kind of part of the idea of the project to try and use London people. So he just, I think, thought it would be fun to just come and work with some London musicians. Got it. And that's why Absolute Beginners doesn't really sound like a lot of the funkier soul music he was doing at the time. Do you play on that song? Yeah. You do? Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, man, I love that song. I've nothing much to offer There's nothing much to take trying to work it out the other night but i i was getting the chords all wrong but oh, it's got a few funny chord changes which is what's nice about it yeah oh good stuff well matthew thank you for talking to me i um oh, oh thanks a lot thanks for letting me talk to you of course this is enlightening you know i mean if you can't tell you're on tons of my favorite music and just hearing someone make the transition from music to law and your, you know, your thoughts on some of these people and what's happened in your career. It's amazing. So thank you for talking. Well, I, I will tell you, I will give you another, you, you, you were saying about um, tips for success and stuff. Yeah. But another thing, I was talking to someone about this the other day, I can't remember who it was. Um, a lot of the most successful people I met were also the nicest people I met. Mm. I don't think, I don't, my own experience is not that it helps to be a bastard, you know. Right. That, um, I, I, Bowie, for example, had real gentle creative soul, or Peter Murphy we were talking about. Mm-hmm. It's been one, a lovely journey to, they say don't meet your heroes, but I think you should. Yeah. That's a good point. I've been able to talk to a few of them on here, and most of them are so lovely. And it's... Yeah. Uh, it enriches our lives, that's for sure. 
So. Yeah, it's it's been it's been a really lovely journey, even uh, as an unknown. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I thought it'd be interesting to talk to you. Because to, to, thank to you. <laughs> no, that is sorry. That sounded bad. I love that sequence. I love that sequence. No, sorry. No, I mean, no. When when Bowie came in, he walked in and he said, "Oh, hello, I'm David," and I said, "I know." Yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah. It, the question is, they say, do you know David? And uh, you know, um, or, or was, oh, I don't know. That's it. Yeah. So, someone says, uh, oh, I know David Bowie, and you say, yeah, but does he know you? Mm, good point. Very true. And yeah. I don't think you know. It was one way, really, with him. A lot of people knew him. But he was a very gentle, nice, kind soul and lovely. Sure. Still, you know, still a huge loss. Yeah, it sure is. I'm not but his music's still there. I've been listening to a couple of his things recently, actually, and it's fantastic. I'll tell you what I love. Um, tell me. It's got some fantastic notes in it, bass notes, especially when it changes in the chorus, Drive In Saturday. Oh, yeah. If I could have a request, that would be it. To play on Drive-In Saturday? Uh, yeah, no, to play on your show. <laughs> oh, well, let's play it right here. <laughs> Thank you very much. There you have it, Matthew Selgman. I have to admit, I started to have a panic attack there at the end when he mentioned Bowie. I didn't know he played with Bowie. I was going off all the credits that I read on allmusic.com, and Bowie wasn't listed on there. And so when he said that, we'd already been talking for like an hour and 10 minutes. I could do another hour just on Bowie, and I didn't want to wear out my welcome. And I started to panic about all the things that Matthew's probably done that I didn't know about because it wasn't listed on all music. In fact, I mentioned this to him afterwards, and he said that he tried to fix all of that, but he had so many hoops they were making him jump through that he didn't bother. So we may have to do a part two sometime where I just let Matthew tell me everything and I don't drive the conversation because I'm sure I missed a ton of stuff that I love that I didn't even know about. I did think it was pretty funny and pretty awesome that he called his own outro song there at the end. That was awesome. Good pick, by the way. Now, next week, we, have, we are going to be hearing from a woman who had a number one hit in the late 80s. And this interview is insane. And uh, I will tell you, she is either the most brutally honest person you have ever heard, or she might be a lunatic. We will find out next week when you hear that. And in a few days, we're going to be putting out a bonus, another bonus. I know I've been showering you guys with content lately. I swear it's going to slow down. I apologize if you're overwhelmed. Um, we're going to be putting out another bonus episode uh, relating to Tom Petty. Now, you guys know the drill. You can find us on Facebook, and you can like the page, and you can stay in communication with me that way. Um, if you're new to this, go into our archives. If you like the kind of music that Matthew played on, we've got lots of interviews with people who did that same kind of stuff, or the 70s or the 90s or whatever. Just go in and see what you like, and then subscribe. Let us know what you think. You can send me an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Uh, huge thanks, i got to say, as always, to my right-hand man, Yan the Man Makiewicz. Thanks, buddy. We will see you guys all later. So long.
Let's go.